This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Katie Rich. It is after the Oscars and I'm here alone. I promise I won't be for long. Um, I have the interview today with Lana Wilson, the director of the documentary Pretty Baby Brooke Shields. Uh, As you'll hear, Lana and I went to college together. I promise she's not only here uh, because of uh, Wesleyan film department nepotism. Uh, she's an excellent documentarian. She made the film Miss Americana about Taylor Swift as well as the documentary After Tiller. And her new film premiered at Sundance earlier this year. It will be on Hulu on April 3rd. Um, And it's about Brooke Shields, as you can tell from the title. The first half of the title comes from the movie that she made uh, when she was a child, directed by Louis Maul. It was a controversy. She was incredibly famous on a level that you can't really understand, as Lana and I talk about, and famous as a sexualized child star, uh, which is another thing that's really hard to understand today. I think the documentary is a fascinating look at child stardom, but also the particular aspects of fame in the 80s, and then talks to Brooke Shields. She is a very present voice throughout the film um, and doesn't discount, you know, what she says about what her childhood was like and how she, you know, enjoyed being on set, even in some of these films that were so controversial, um, but talks a lot of experts as well about kind of what her treatment and her portrayal in pop culture did for other young girls or how it affected the way that people viewed her and what a teenage girl's agency was. It's really complicated stuff. Lana is a really thoughtful director and a thoughtful interview, I think you'll hear, um, and doesn't really come down on one side or the other on a lot of these ideas. She really just presents them and, and invites you to think about it the way she does, the way Brooke Shields is, and the way a lot of the people in the film are. Um, I thought it was a great conversation. So let's hear my conversation with Pretty Baby Brooke Shields director, Lana Wilson. So I'm joined now by uh, Lana Wilson, the director of Pretty Baby, uh, my former college classmate. I get to brag at the uh, beginning of the show. Uh, I really have done my best to invite many Wesleyan graduates onto this show. So um, I feel like I'm really doing my part. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. The Wesleyan people are everywhere. 
Can't escape them. Yeah, we want to make sure everyone knows that we're uh, ever present <laughs> as much as possible. Um, so you are the director of Pretty Baby Brooke Shields, which will uh, debut at the Sundance Film Festival. It'll be on Hulu in April. Um, and it captivated me even before I had seen it, not even because you were directing it, which made me pay attention to it, but um, I feel like Brooke Shields is this kind of undertold story in uh, Hollywood. And I imagine that's a big part of, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, you know, finding stories that maybe are hidden in plain sight. Um, and so just a really general question, you know, you'd come off of Miss Americana, this movie about Taylor Swift. You have another very, very famous woman at the center of your movie. Did one thing lead to another as naturally as it seems from the outside? No, not really. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I had just come off Miss Americana. I was starting this other project I'm doing about psychics that I've been working on for a while. So a kind of multi-year project. And this Brooke Shields documentary idea, the idea of a documentary about her, just came across my desk. And I thought, huh. I was immediately really intrigued. But I was also at the same time a little uncertain about doing another celebrity project immediately. Um, so I was, I was curious. So I thought I'd love to meet Brooke and I met her. I loved talking to her. She was really smart. And I was struck by, first of all, she'd watched all of my films, including, mm. you know, one that's in Japanese about death, which she had actually watched twice. And so I was <laughs> like, okay, she's very committed. She's for real. <laughs> she's for real. But, um, she also genuinely wanted a director to come in and have a real perspective and vision and take on her life. And she was fearless. Nothing mm-hmm. was off limits. I would have creative control. Brooke's only concern that she voiced at that first meeting was that she was worried this wouldn't be deep enough or mm. that all of her layers wouldn't be in there. And so um, I just really appreciated her intelligence and, and depth and commitment. But the thing that really sold me on doing this was that at that first meeting, Brooke handed me a hard drive. And she said this was all of the footage her mother had collected over her entire life. Every photo, every TV appearance, every film she'd ever been in. And I took the hard drive home and started opening random files. And at first I was just like, this is crazy. You know, there's Brooke at age 15 doing this drum major at routine with a bunch of poodles who are in matching outfits. <laughs> there's Brooke at age 22 being introduced by Ban Ki-moon at the Reagan White House. And you're just like, what is this? Yeah. But then I started to find these clips of Brooke at age 12 on the press tour for Pretty Baby, which was Mm -hmm. the first film she was ever in and a very controversial film. And I saw this little girl basically on the hot seat being grilled by these talk show hosts who would first praise her for her beauty and her sensuality and her maturity, but then also would criticize her for being Mm -hmm. an exhibitionist, for being too provocative and for participating in something that many people considered to be child pornography. And as I watched this, I thought... This is a situation that I think a lot of women and girls still have to navigate, and often privately. But here's Brooke Shields at age 12 having to deal with all this privately. And I think I just had this moment of feeling like this is incredibly contemporary, and I'd love to dive into Brooke's life and look at it and tell this story, but also do it from a contemporary perspective. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional 
playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman. And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I mean, I think like a lot of people who at least, you know, are in the film history world, I learned more about Pretty Baby from Karina Longworth's podcast. And yeah. and, um, and she's a voice interviewed in the documentary and she talked about Polly Platt's role in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of felt like once you get closer to it and you learn more about Pretty Baby, you can kind of figure out how it worked. But it's almost like this object that's too large to see, even as close as you get. Like, Mm. it's a major part of the film. It's what gives the film its title. And I think that you've got expert perspectives on it. You've got Brooke's perspective on it. And it's no one ever really knows what the right answer is of how we should deal with it. And I I think that is very much your perspective, too. Uh How do you approach an object that big and that controversial and difficult um, and, you know, really have to face it head on? Yeah. Well, I think Pretty Baby, the original Pretty Baby by Louis Mall, is a really complicated and fascinating film. And ultimately decided that in treating it in this project, that this was not strictly a film historical analysis of Pretty Baby and what it did and what it meant in the valuation of it as film. It was more like, well, what did this mean in the context of Brooke's life? And what were the questions that the larger culture was asking about it? And what did that say about the larger culture? Because the whole film is Brooke's story interwoven with how she was reflecting these bigger questions and issues Mm -hmm. in American culture at large. So starting with the sexualization of girls and debates around that, but then the progressivism of the 70s giving way to this conservatism in the 80s and how Brooke reflected these changing moral values to the world. She started to reflect this moral purity and virginity culture to the world in the 80s. So with Pretty Baby, it was like, you know, Brooke did not feel uncomfortable filming Pretty Baby at any point. And she made that really clear. People were scandalized by it, but Brooke did not feel uncomfortable. What I was really struck by was two things. First, the fact that she wasn't treated as an actor who would be bringing a lot to the character. You know, Louis Mall was not talking to her about characterization and motivations and how to play Violet. And I think that was intentional, but that was a trend that persisted throughout Brooke's career. So I Treating thought- Treating her like an object, like a thing to be placed in the frame. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then the second thing was the fact that Terry Shields, Brooke's mother, was criticized, castigated really, for letting Brooke be in Pretty Baby but no questions were ever asked in the same way of the director or of the entertainment industry as a whole. All the blame was put on the mother. So I thought that in terms of Brooke's overall story, which was, you know, me looking at, well, how has this woman fundamentally changed and evolved over the course of the last 50 years? What has happened? What I saw was someone going from being an object to being a human being. And so in looking at the original film, Pretty Baby, what I was looking for was, Where is that in this trajectory and what effect did it have on Brooke? 
Yeah. I mean, what is such a fascinating effect of yours is that you have Brooke telling her story saying, I didn't feel exploited. This was my experience. And then you have experts saying this was exploitation. You have people talking about the sexualization of girls. But it doesn't discount Brooke's own perspective on her own life, which I think is really tempting to do as we're like, well, now that we know in the future, we can see how terrible this was. And Brooke's not willing to do that. And the film isn't willing to do that while also... but, But it also seems like Brooke understands why people are criticizing it. Uh-huh. Like, she falls in this gray area, too. And I, and I wonder how those conversations that you had with her or you see her talking to her friend about it, like, how did those conversations evolve as you guys captured these? Yeah. Yeah, and I love your observation about the pretty baby thing. And one thing I just wanted to add is that I love Karina Longworth's podcast about Polly Platt. And I think her voice is so important in that section because she's acknowledging that there is perhaps an intentional ambiguity from Louis Maul in the film in terms of, are you participating in this? Are you judging this? Is this a critique or is it not a critique? Which is so interesting. But yeah, you're right that my goal is to allow for all of those different points of view and Brooke's position being a little bit different to all exist in the film. And yeah, with her, it's that, you know, she has a different feeling about the work she did when she was a teenager than she would have on a film she did 10 years ago. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? She was a kid, so her, her thinking evolves along the way. Um, and I think that I did four days of interviews with her where she had to wear the same thing every day over and over for four days. <laughs> her hair but looked amazing every time. Her hair looked incredible. <laughs> it always does. Yeah. Um, but it, it really was going through her whole life first chronologically and then going back to different things and pushing in some areas Um because she is completely aware of the of criticism or people of different opinions. And I would sometimes play devil's advocate, you know, mm. but what about this? And also, I think a big part of the film is, well, now she has teenage daughters. Yeah. If she was her mother, would she have done that? Or how would she feel about her daughters doing that? And so she's a really, like I said, smart, sophisticated, deep person who's really complex. And so she has the capacity to understand and stand by her experience as an 11-year-old on set of Pretty Baby, but also to see it differently now. Um, yeah. And then the conversation with her friend, um, I put in just to get like kind of, it is like a sort of prismatic thing where yeah. just wanting to get different ways of looking at it and just something about her in a friend, talking to her in an even more casual way just gives another access point. I mean, And the friend some- being like, oh my God, Brooke, like, it's helpful to have an audience surrogate at that point, yeah. I think. Yes, exactly. So there's something about sitting down for a formal interview I think is really powerful in a way because you come in and it feels like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I I love that for some situations, you know, like this is – there's lighting here. You know, you're going to yeah. sit on this chair and talk, we're going to talk for eight hours but then there's something very different that you get from you're going to have a casual conversation with your friend on the couch and you do get the audience effect, as you say. So I just wanted to have both. Yeah. Well, and then you save until almost the end of the film the conversation with her daughters, which mm-hmm. is, you know, you've already gone through her life. You've seen Suddenly Susan and Andre Agassi and like many other famous points in her life. And you kind of circle back around to Pretty Baby. Why would why was that the place for that conversation? Yeah. I always knew that I I wanted us to not see her daughters until the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Because I think that if you watch the end, and it's quite long, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> two parts, it's like two and a half hours long. But I do think, and I'm hoping that people will watch it from start, from, you know, starting with episode part one and into part yeah. two, that if you watch the whole thing, you start to really emotionally connect to Brooke the further along you go. Mm-hmm. And I think you've lived through her relationship with her mother and she goes through postpartum depression. So when you first see her daughters, 
I hope people are are kind of startled and amazed. And, yeah. and also, I think you almost can't, at least my experience as a viewer, is that I'm almost not even listening to the beginning because I'm just staring at them. And you're also just looking for how is her relationship with her daughters like her relationship with her mom or is it different and how so? And I, I think, you know, the first thing that you're feeling in that scene is less the content, but more, oh, whoa, like her daughters are really sharing their opinions with her yeah. in a way that Brooke would not have with her mom in the same way. Um, there's a comfort level and a freedom to speak your mind in that room, in that kitchen. Um, but basically what happened for, you know, filming that, it was, I always wanted to bookend it with Brooke's everyday life and to see her daughters at the end. And so we were just filming day in the life type stuff. The plan was to film her having dinner with her family. I wasn't sure if anything would come out of it at all. Like it could have just been visual, but um, they sat down and I was like, have you guys seen any of your mom's early films? And they started talking. And then Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, I stood back, that was it. And was really surprised by what unfolded because it was an incredible conversation and a really revealing one and a powerful one. But I also think that sometimes when that's the only, one of the only verite scenes in this film, which is Mm -hmm. largely archival and interview based, sometimes when you're filming verite, you feel like, oh, I shouldn't be here. Sometimes you feel like this feels very fake and strained and weird, like I'm very visible. And this was one of those situations where, yeah, I said, have you guys seen your mom's early films? And I stepped back and it almost was like they hadn't had the opportunity to talk about this with their mom before, but actually had a lot of thoughts, as you can see in the film. So it was one of those rare and precious situations in documentary filmmaking where I and the cinematographers, just the two of us there, felt like we really did melt into the wall and they just talked for an hour and a half. And I think for them, the fact that we were there filming this actually provided this opportunity to talk about stuff they might not have otherwise talked about. When it feels like the moment where like the past collides with this notion of like, we are now in the present, we know what is right. Like these girls to some extent are like, well, now, of course, you would never make that. And Brooke is willing to push back on that. And yeah, there is so much nuance there that like in some ways I'm uncomfortable with because I like the idea of having a child in that situation is so like kind of makes me itch. But Uh Brooke is the living reminder that like it's her story to tell in some way, too. I just I'm so kind of captivated by that. Um that contrast that exists within her and that she seems pretty comfortable with in the end. Right. No, the pushback is so interesting. And I remember watching that thinking, I have a small daughter. And I was like, I would love if I could create a world. I don't think I'm as, I won't be as good of a parent as Brooke is. But if I'm half as good, you know, the idea that you and your family can comfortably push back against each other and let it all out there and say things that are honest and real, but also push back, but also be respectful and loving. I mean, I'm used no. to more like, you know, yelling fights and, you know, storming out, slamming the door, or people not saying things. I think that's often a more common dynamic in families. And I was struck by how rare it is to have this kind of special dynamic that that I was seeing. Um, I love Drew Barrymore's role in this movie because she kind of <laughs> shows up like a little ways in and she's barefoot, yep. which is just wonderful. And, and I'm curious about how many like other child actors or other people who like had a, no one had had exactly Brooke's experience. But like, did you really want to seek out someone who had like kind of been at that white hot center of a spotlight? To Is there a perspective that Drew Barrymore or someone else like that could have that no one else could? Yeah. Well, the reason we wanted to talk to Drew was she was, yeah, obviously also a child actor, a little younger than Brooke, but they knew each other. She yeah. was a contemporary of hers in a lot of ways. Um, and she had a very, you know, her mother was her manager, and she had a very different experience with that, too. 
but she's she's come out the other side and she's mm-hmm. still working and she's still doing a lot of creative, amazing things. And so, yeah, I thought it was a, a comparable experience in some ways, different than others, but also the fact that she knows Brooke mm-hmm. as a colleague and as a friend, that seemed really meaningful too. So that's why we we chose her. Yeah. I mean, you and I are both not quite old enough to know how famous Brooke was at her peak. Yep. Like, I, I, there's just this emphasis, I think, early on being like, you don't know. You don't understand. I think it's the opening in the movie where it's like there were 10 famous people and Brooke was one of them. Like, yeah. did you really feel like for, you know, people younger than us or people our age that you have to, like, explain what fame was on that level back then? Yes. Yeah. Because it was so different. I mean, it's like, who are the most recognizable women in the world Queen Elizabeth, Jackie Onassis, Brooke Shields, yeah. you know? So, it, and there were just, there were less public figures and they were much more broadly known. It was magazines and newspapers and movies and TV. Now we have social media and we have a lot of people who are famous and they have millions of followers. But I yeah. think there's tens of thousands of people with millions of followers. So they're not all immediately recognizable the way Brooke Shields was. And um, yeah, another part of that, that is such a central aspect of the film and of her story is the fact that she went to college was a very big deal mm-hmm. and had not happened before. The only actress who had ever gone to college before, who was a public figure and an actress who had gone to college and was a big deal was made of it, was Jodie Foster. And that uh-huh. was a big deal, but she was also not at the same level of global fame that Brooke Shields was. So that was really surprising to me to look back at that archival material and that footage and realize how shocking this was to people, how surprised they were, because a lot of global audiences saw Brooke Shields as a sex symbol, and the idea that she would be going to college was surprising to them and upsetting in some cases, and also seeing the pushback, the ridicule, mm-hmm. the mockery on late-night television of people trying to remind audiences, you know, we see her as a sex symbol. Ignore this college stuff. Yeah. Did it make you feel like we have gotten to a better place in how we treat younger people who achieve that level of fame? Or does the cycle continue after looking at it as deeply as you have? Hmm. I don't know about younger people who've achieved that level of fame, but I definitely felt like things have not really changed very much in how we treat women and girls in general. Mm -hmm. That was something I was constantly thinking about. I still think that women are primarily celebrated for being desirable, for being beautiful, for being hot. I think that is the majority of the women we see on magazine covers. And that I think those rare moments we get to see, for instance, a female politician on a magazine cover, it's because she's controversial mm-hmm. and people are upset. You know, So I, I think that's a big thing that hasn't changed. I think working on this project made me um, even think a lot about like, little things myself, like how confused I feel when I look in the mirror in the morning and I try to get dressed and think, I, I, I need to try to look good, but I need to try to not look sexy because that's not <laughs> serious, but I can't look not pretty, but should I try to what? It's just, yep. and then you go to where you're going and you're like, fuck, like I dressed the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Like I screwed this up. And just, just how much absurd like time I waste thinking about how other people see me. So I, I hope that One thing I thought a lot about working on this was how we're trained to look at other people and how to look at ourselves, how inescapable that is, how powerful these images around us all the time 
are. Yeah, I mean, this and Miss Americana both are just about women who become the projection of every what everyone is looking at them. Like they are a mirror for that everyone puts in front of them and how mm-hmm. hollowing that can be. And, um, you know, it kind of makes you look at fame in an entirely different way. And I know you said you're making films about other things, but it kind of makes me want to see every famous person through that light. And it might not be appropriate, <laughs> but I think those two really yeah. go hand in hand in that way. Yeah, well, it's interesting because... Um, I feel so lucky to have gotten to make films about these two women who are extraordinary human beings and people and artists, but I've never been, you know, interested in fame for fame's sake. Or, you know, I think one thing that we did in the edit on this project was I had a rule, a mandate, which was no famous person problems. Mm. If it's a problem that only a famous person has, it's not going in here. If it's a problem that anyone can relate to, Let's look at that. Yeah. Because I think that ultimately what's interesting about fame is how it amplifies human yeah. problems. Like that's what it is. It's putting a human problem on a global scale and on this massive platform and, and multiplying it by a thousand. So with Brooke, the fact that she was experiencing this extraordinary level of global fame while she was going through all this stuff was like a magnifying glass, you Mm -hmm. know? But the fundamental emotional experience she was having is something that I think a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, you think about her relationship with Michael Jackson, where, like, the problem is that he's telling the press things that are not true about the relationship, but it's, Uh you know, not that different from a weird relationship you have as a teenager where you, like, don't get the other person. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Um, how does Brooke feel? I mean, not to speak for her, but like the movie premiered at Sundance, it's about to come, you know, out on Hulu and for a global audience. Like, what's your sense of how she's anticipating um, this really deep look into her life? Yeah. When I finished it, it was done and I screened it for her. It was just me and her alone. And I think it was a very overwhelming experience. It was really intense. And I think that she had a whole mix of feelings, um, kind of like, ah, but also you know, sensitivity and vulnerability. She's very vulnerable in the film and, oh my God, will this be okay? And also, um, you know, just reflecting back on all the people she's lost to her in the film, including her mother. Yeah, I think also just this shock in a way of seeing this little girl being on all these talk shows, being asked these very difficult, impossible questions Mm -hmm. and thinking, oh my God, that's me. So I, and, you know, and, the film is really about her over many years discovering who she was and coming to terms with that. And I think that's an an evolving process for her still. It's a lifelong process for her like it is for a lot of people. So I think the reception at Sundance was incredible. And I think what was most interesting to see with Brooke was people talking to her who all had a different access point to the film. It is a bit of a Rorschach 
sorry, I can't pronounce that word. I've never been able to. Rorschach. Rorschach. I can't say it. But um, it's a bit like that where people could say, you know, I lost my mother to addiction too and blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. I had postpartum depression and da, da, da. There's so many gateways in. And so it was interesting was getting to see all these different people share their experiences with Brooke. And that's also, I think, what's hard about it. I mean, she's been through this before because she's been candid and very revealing at different moments in her life. And I think yeah. what comes with that is then people come up with you and you're getting told things, you know, you, you imagine, are they even telling their therapist this stuff? Yeah. You're, you're hearing these very intimate things. And that's um, the privilege in a way of being some someone like Brooke, who her whole life has had people come up to her and feel emotionally connected to her and safe telling her all this stuff. They probably haven't told anyone else. Mm-hmm. It's also the burden in a way, because that's a hard load to carry when it's so much of it you yeah. know it's a lot to take on yeah can you imagine so. how many people have told her postpartum depression yeah so i mean she's like a true trailblazer on that front um and i'm sure people are so grateful for her while also that's a lot for one person <laughs> to hold on to yeah but i think she's really really excited about the launch and really proud of the film and just getting to see this whole sweeping span of her life and her work yeah in it and she's um yeah like i said she's She's fearless as a performer and as a person. So I think she's looking forward to it. Here's one last question for you. If there's something to like go back and watch her in, if like you have been aware of Brooke Shields as a famous person, but not necessarily her work, what would you send people to? Yeah, I actually think her recent comedy stuff, Mm. like Jane the Virgin, Mm -hmm. I think she's fantastic on. And I, I think that that's where she feels most herself. Yeah, You know, she is so game for any any role, but especially any comic role. I think she's really in her element in that work. So that's what I would recommend. Yeah. Yeah. I love all the clips from Suddenly Susan. And like, I know she got sick with the Pratt Falls. She's really good at them. You know? Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> because she's a fantastic physical comedian yeah. and um, felt so in her own skin. And I think any of her friends and family members would say that her character on that show is the most like her. At a certain point, because she's so smart, she also saw, you know, I'm just being used in this one way over yeah. and over again. And the show is not going to progress very far unless we change it. So, you know, she's she's still doing a lot of really exciting work right now. And I know she has a lot of cool comedy stuff coming up. So I'm excited to see how she pushes that even further in this next stage of her career. Yeah. Uh, well, Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields premieres on Hulu on April 3rd. Um, Lana Wilson, I cannot wait to see your movie about psychics or uh, whatever's next. So thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to see you and talk to you. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our 2024 Oscar predictions episode, Believe It or Not. Um, And I will be joined by my full crew as usual. Uh, In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. Uh, And I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.